Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It's great to have you on board. If you aren't familiar with Euros Hartley's, we are a proudly Western Australian diversified financial services company. If you would like to learn more about the services we can provide, please visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This episode, we are really fortunate to have as our special guest, Mr. Paddy Gregg, the CEO of Austel Limited, stock code ASB. Austel is Australia's global shipbuilder and defence prime contractor, designing, constructing and sustaining some of the world's most advanced commercial and defence vessels. For more than 30 years, Austel has contracted more than 340 vessels for over 121 commercial and defence operators in 59 countries worldwide. It's such an interesting story. Paddy grew up in Northern Ireland and we have quite a unique opportunity to hear his story on how he accumulated some seriously interesting experiences on his journey to being CEO of Austel. These include being head of Project Ambush for BAE Systems Submarines, where he was responsible for the delivery of Ambush, the second boat in the astute class new build Hunter Killer class nuclear submarines to time, cost and quality. And also his time working for Network Rail. Network Rail is the owner and infrastructure manager of most of the railway network in Great Britain. This episode provides some pretty amazing insights into the world of commercial and defence shipbuilding. So without further ado, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce all round good guy and the CEO of Austel, Mr. Paddy Gregg. Paddy, welcome to Finding the Front and thanks a lot for coming in and taking the time out to join us for a chat on your journey to the position of CEO of Austel. It's an exciting company and we're so stoked to have you on. Thanks a lot for coming, Paddy. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's fantastic. So Paddy, look, one of the important aspects of Finding the Front and this podcast is to learn a little bit about your background and where you grew up and some of the things that really shaped you and moulded you as a person in your formative years, and then we'll lead into your professional career. But look, in my research, it was pretty obvious that you grew up in Northern Ireland. I think the accent gives it away Yeah, I picked it it up. I picked it up. (laughs) So uh, look, just tell us a little bit about that. How did you go in in Northern Ireland and, and growing up there would have been, I noticed that where you grew up in Hollywood or Hollywood? Hollywood. Hollywood was on the coast and a beautiful little beachside village. Yeah, it's a fantastic childhood, really. You know, everything seemed very normal. Lovely little primary school around the corner from where we lived, close to the beach, you know, plenty of green space and open space. And, you know, in those days, it was still acceptable to let your kids go out at eight o'clock in the morning. And as long as they were back at five o'clock for their tea, then, then everything was okay. And, 
you know, we had some great adventures, you know, running wild, lots of good friends, playing football or soccer and uh, lighting fires, building tree houses, out on bikes, just doing what kids should do, being pretty free range. And I think it's only years later you reflect on the fact, well, it was always outdoors and it was close to home. It was never in the city or, or anything like that. And I, and I think, you know, after living away for many, many years now, you, you reflect on, you know, there was a lot of dangerous and nasty things very close by. But, yes. you know, where we live, absolutely fine. Yet 10 miles away, buildings and cars would get blown up. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, firstly, I just maybe concentrate a little bit on the beach and that sort of outdoors lifestyle. Did you get out in the water on the ocean? Too cold. Too cold? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you come to Perth and it gets to, you know, 20 degrees and everyone starts putting jumpers on, but that's a summer's day. So, <laughs> you know, if the sun's shining here, I'm often found on Cottesloe Beach with the dog and, and I will definitely have a swim. <laughs> and the schooling that you went through, you went to primary school there in, in Hollywood and, and then went through to secondary school. And how did you find the, the education and did you enjoy school? I think school was great. Yeah. yeah. And not so much primary school for whatever reason. You know, I don't look back on that and think uh, great times, but uh, maybe I've just had a hard life and lost those memories. So, but certainly secondary school, great time. You know, co-educational school, completely mixed, great groups of people, friends I still have today, and a school that was really well balanced between focus on academics and good sports as well. So I, I really enjoyed secondary school. Did you love your rugby? Loved rugby, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Played a lot of rugby at school, really enjoyed it. Did a lot of athletics as well. You know, used to be reasonably quick out in the wing. Doesn't look like it today, but um, <laughs> hard to imagine. Um, found bear at university and uh, stopped doing so much of the running and the athletics and enjoyed the camaraderie of the, the team sport. And we played a lot of great rugby with uh, some brilliant people. Oh, fantastic. Tell us a little bit about your family. So you grew up with one sister? One sister, yeah. yeah. So mum, dad, sister, dog, um, yep, yep. everything was great. Very, what did your dad very do? supportive. Uh, he worked in high street banks. Yes. You know, so fairly standard. Left in the morning, dropped stuff at school. He went into the city, did his job, came home, six o'clock, tea was on the table. You know, mum was usually at home for most of it. And yes. then, um, you know, as we got a bit older and more independent, she did a bit of work as well, working with uh, a nursery school and... Yeah, but all, always around and, you know, a very, very close family, so it was great. Yeah, great. And is your sister still living over there? Yes, she's over there doing the dutiful need with the parents and looking after them and, and keeping them happy while I uh, travel the world and, and have fun. Oh, good honour. So you alluded to earlier about the nasties of just what was happening just down the road from you. Can you give us a little bit of an insight on that side of things and whether that had a, I mean, clearly didn't have an impact on you in your life growing up, but just generally in that Northern Ireland stage and the, the IRA and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I think, you know, when I was growing up, probably the, the worst of it was over and it had turned into sort of more traditional bad stuff. You know, it was less about religion, but that was the cover up for racketeering and drugs and money and all that sort of thing that you can find in any big city really yes. um, but it but it continued so i think you know you just learn to be a little bit street smart and you know read the environment and maybe i won't go down that street and maybe i'll cross the road yeah, here sure. and you know just be very aware of your surroundings you know i think any city these days you can you can find trouble if you wanted it wasn't as bad as uh, you know my parents tell stories about bomb scares and everyone being evacuated from buildings and, yeah. and things like that. So that had all kind of stopped by the time I was growing up. But 
you know, strange things. You know, they were trying to extort money from big shops and, you know, any shop you went into in the city, you had to open your shopping bags because they were checking for incendiary devices and, and things like that, which all seemed very normal at the time. That's just what everybody did. Yes. But you kind of reflect on it and you think it's not normal. And, you know, it's great every time I go back now, it's more and more normal and there's less and less trouble and there's less and less people that want the trouble. So it's, you know, really flourishing. Oh, that's good to hear. really is. And your sister clearly enjoys it over there and your folks. Yeah, they love it. Yep. Absolutely love it. And, you know, sister very happy. She's different to me. You know, she, she's in occupational therapy and very interested in helping people and giving back. And, you know, I, I go down the corporate route. So Yeah, uh, oh, well, yeah, we'll get to that. Different. That's Yeah. So university, what we often ask when we're at this point on finding the front is a lot of the listeners have got kids and that sort of thing or have been in that situation where they've got to work out what they want to do with their lives, particularly when they're leaving school. Did you have any ambitions or understanding of what you wanted to do when you left school? Not really. No. So being a parent now, I look back and I was probably a bit of a nightmare that you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go to university because in theory you got a better job and I knew that was four years living away from home playing a lot of rugby and making some friends and having a couple of beers perhaps. Yeah. You know, so so I knew I knew I wanted to go to university and I knew I wanted to move away, you know, so 18 years old, packed the bags and uh, went over to England and went to university in Newcastle upon Tyne and Yes. I was really interested in how things work and you know, that's really what got me into engineering. You know, it excited me. I was interested in it, but I didn't have a clear idea what I wanted to do at the end of it. You know, I think the focus was more on let's go and play sports and have a good time and, and, and meet some friends and get a degree along the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. But you ended up doing a degree in mechanical and automotive engineering, which is quite a specific area. But did it allow you to keep your options open, really, in terms of what you wanted to pursue? Um, yeah, I think so. You know, yeah. so so engineering, good degree to have. And, you know, I knew enough that even though I didn't want to specialise in anything at the end of it, having the mechanical engineering degree would open a lot of doors. And the master's with focus on automotive, you know, I was always interested in cars and engines and things like that. So that, yes. was, that was more of a personal interest than a desire to get into one particular space. And doing the master's degree gave you an extra year at university, which was always a good thing. I'm, I'm not sure the old man thought that. Whenever uh, he realised I'd, I'd be uh, on the payroll for another year, but um, yeah, it worked for me. Well, you certainly went on to achieve some quite significant qualifications, Paddy. I was just reading through what you have so far achieved in your life. You've gone on, you've, you've done your degree and your master's. You went on and did a business economics program at Trinity College at Oxford. Yeah, just one of those sort of things. I think it's really interesting when I look back. Yeah. I wouldn't describe myself as an academic no. type of fellow, but you know, you count the number of courses or qualifications you've got along the way, and then you count the number of post-nominals you could put after your name if you're that way inclined. I'm not, but um, you know, it gets to, gets to a fair number. Yeah, well, it does. Senior Management Nuclear Reactor Familiarisation a registered project professional and association of project management, and then a chartered engineer and fellow with the Institute of Mechanical Engineers. So yes, you did continue on. You probably could fill up your business card. Yeah, I probably could, but that's not really me. So, yeah, sure. uh, you know. So that led you into work, and I suppose it's a good start to understand with that engineering background and the commerce side as well, or economics, your first 
role was with a significant organisation in BAE Systems. Now, for the listener, if you're not familiar with BAE Systems, it's a British multinational defence security and aerospace company. Its headquarters are in London and operations are worldwide. The company is the largest defence contractor in Europe and among the world's largest defence companies. And it's got some 85,000 employees. You started as a graduate. That's it. You know, a, a fantastic company. You're finishing university, you're meeting companies, they're kind of going on the milk run looking at graduates. I remember to this day going to the BAE stand and looking at nuclear submarines and thought, that's pretty interesting. Yes. How does that work? Who builds nuclear submarines? And ended up applying for the, the role with BAE and was offered the job. And, you know, again, pack up the bag. You know, everything I owned in those days fitted in the back of my little golf and drove across the country to this place called Barrow in Furness that I'd never even heard of before I went there. It's a little port town in England. It's a little port town in England, but uh, has a whole lot of shipbuilding heritage. You know, originally founded because there was iron ore in the hills, and then they started uh, foundry, they started making ships, so hundreds of years of history in that place that had developed all the way through to be capable of building nuclear submarines for the UK. Quite amazing. Quite amazing. So you arrived at BAE, and you started out as a graduate, but you proceeded to move quickly into, and you can explain this a little bit better, Paddy, but production manager for Pipe Shop to production manager for affordability to senior project manager and then head of project ambush. Now that sounds quite interesting, head of project ambush, but just to expand on that a little bit, were you responsible for the delivery of ambush, the second boat in the astute class, new build, hunter, killer, class, nuclear submarines? Wow. Quite frightening when you think about it. Well, what an amazing role, firstly, for a guy who wanted to learn how to build one and thought these sounded quite interesting. But secondly, tell us about your journey through there. You were there for some 11 years. Yeah, so joining as a graduate, BAE had a great graduate development scheme. Uh, Nominally two years where you're on a series of rotations through different departments, helping you understand the company, how it works, helping the company understand you. Because it's very much about, you know, taking these bright young things that are full of energy and enthusiasm and, and finding the right home for them. So, you know, some really interesting experiences as I, as I went through. And then someday somebody decided that wouldn't it be a great idea if we gave them a proper job? And I ended up managing the pipe production facility, you know. So nuclear submarines are, are full of pipes that carry all sorts of things. And, you know, there's about, sticks in my mind, 23,000 in the non-nuclear systems on the submarine. And the uh, uh, manufacturing facility that they put me in charge of was responsible for building all of those. And what a baptism of fire. Yes. I think, I think as you go through your career, you remember good bosses or people that have given you an opportunity. And, and you know, the managing director at the time, a guy called Murray Easton, we're still friends today. He'd kind of picked me out and said, you're a guy that wants to go places. We need people with enthusiasm and we need to give them experience. And he was a big believer in giving people a chance. And the way you learn is to be thrown in at the deep end, and that very much was the deep end. So the, the pipe production shop is really where some of the older tradesmen ended up. Yes. The guys that weren't as mobile and able to crawl around inside the submarines, but they had a whole lot of experience and they were highly skilled in what they did. So 
they always like to have a bit of fun, you know, especially with a young guy. This is my first proper management position. Yes. It ran over two shifts. There were about 100 guys, 50 on each shift. So they decided that you had to come and introduce yourself at shift handover. And the canteen was only designed to have 50 people. Right. So shift handover, they made sure there was 100 people in there. So you kind of turn up and you can't see the front, which is where they expect you to be. They want to see the whites of your eyes. Yes. So, yeah, you start with, excuse me, and they might look over their shoulder, but nobody moves. So you force your way through a hundred of the biggest bears you've ever seen <laughs> who are hungry for blood and yes. they like young blokes. And you get on the stage at the front and you sort of introduce yourself. Hi guys, I'm Paddy, I'm the new shop manager. And you're about to get into, you know, I'm really excited to be here and we're going to make a great team and we've got a big challenge ahead of us. Uh, someone at the back puts their hand up and you think, well, that's interesting. I better ask him what he wants or what goes on. Yes, sir. Yes. Do you have a question? Yeah, I do. What the f- do you know about pipes? <laughs> so, you know, whenever you compose yourself in what feels like a lifetime, but it's probably only a few seconds, you work out you're either going to live or die. Yes. And my answer was absolutely nothing, but I've been told you guys know everything. So there was a bit of a giggle. You've broken the ice. Good on you, Paddy. You're in there. And it went okay after that because I got out alive. And, you know, I started the next day and, and getting to know people and, you know, I think I've been a big believer all the way through that you need all sorts of people. Not everyone can be at the top. Not everyone's at the bottom. Not everyone can do technical things. Not everybody can do graphic things. You know, so we all sort of found our place and we all had a common goal to make the place a better place to work, get a better output, get recognition for what we were doing. And I think once we all came to the conclusion that we were all batting for the same side and we were all trying to do the same thing, you know, it, it worked really well and we got massive productivity gains the team came together yeah it was just it was a fantastic experience but that's one of those things you'll never forget that day one and how you started with them that is a serious baptism of fire yeah absolutely absolutely but you obviously thrived on it in the end yeah i think so and i think you know you go through those experiences yes and you realize you're going to get through them it's going to be okay you know, so, so any promotion I've had, any new job, any change, any difficult meeting, difficult customer, whatever it is, you do all your preparation, you plan for it, you wonder how it will go, you create scenarios in your head about what might happen, how I'll react, um, what I'll say if he or she says that. And the only thing you know is it's never going to be what you think it is, but you've kind of got this warm feeling in the back of your mind that says, I know I'll be able to get through this. Yes. I've had some big experiences. I've had some great experiences. I've learned from them. We're going to get through this. So you take it with you everywhere you go. It must have laid a pretty serious foundation for what you were to do next. This role of project manager for affordability. Could you yeah, so expand on that a little bit more? Absolutely. We had some big challenges in the submarine world. You know, it's a, a kind of a monopsony situation where you've got one customer and you've got one builder really so there was a lot of tension and, and a lot of animosity because the customer was accusing us of being fat dumb and happy and not incentivized to deliver efficiently because they couldn't go anywhere else and we really didn't think that was the case but we had recognized over the years you know things had expanded and more roles get justified and overheads get bigger and if you you know, take all the emotion out of it and just look at it in terms of cold, hard cash. Yes, costs had definitely risen in the business. So we made a massive commitment to, BAE made a massive commitment to 
government and, and navy about what we could do to reduce cost. Yes. So we put a program in place to systematically review and reduce overhead cost in the business. And you know, we took out you know nearly thirty percent of uh, cost in the business, a massive saving. And and that was a a year on year saving that was sustainable. That wasn't one big hit. Right. And that made the cost of the submarines you know much cheaper than anybody anticipated, and had a big part to play in future orders and rebuilding that trust between the the company and the customer and you know we put a lot of focus on doing the right thing uh delivering on our commitments and making sure you know this was a win-win rather than a lose-lose right well that commercial aspect of it combined with the pipes effectively sets you into heading up the project management of the ambush yeah i think so you know so some real great experience of understanding the manufacturing side and, and how the submarines come together, coupling the financial side in terms of what makes the business tick, yes. you know, rather, not the corporate finance, but the, the real drivers of cost in the business, the, yes. the manors, the materials, and how it all works. Yeah, so absolutely an amazing role, being responsible for the, the second submarine. And the delivery of that on time, cost, and quality. So when you look at that in light of what you are actually building, an astute class, new build, hunter, killer, class, nuclear submarine. So just tell us a little bit about what that machine is lined up to do. When it's used by the customer, in this case, the defence force, for protection. Absolutely, yeah. Defence. They're absolutely amazing pieces of equipment for, for Navy. You know, incredibly silent, incredibly hard to find. Uh, an incredible capability to listen and understand what other people are doing. So a really intelligent piece of equipment that can sit there and gather information and feedback centrally so people understand what's happening or the ability to get somewhere and launch an attack if one day it's ever needed. So, you know, just a very, very capable piece of equipment. And you know, I think it's exactly what we're seeing in Australia today. You know, th- these are absolutely vital for navies. And, you know, it's going to be fantastic whenever Australia joins the Nuclear Submarine Club. You would have had a, a quite a passionate view, I would have thought, Paddy, on the recent handling of the submarine construction by the Australian government. Did you have a good insight into that? From your BAE perspective, rather than from your Austral perspective, yeah, not not really insight into what was happening because I actually think it's probably the best kept defence secret there's ever been. You know, no, nothing leaked until the day we heard about the new AUKUS arrangement and the fact that Australia was going to cancel the deal with the conventional subs and, and go nuclear. And in my mind, you know, that's absolutely the right answer. We have a huge amount of ocean and we need submarines to travel a long way. So going nuclear is absolutely the best option. Right. Thanks for sharing that. So... When we look at that now, and you spent some 11 years, as I say, during that period, you got married to your wife, Susie. I did, yeah. Managed to find time to get married and all of that. <laughs> it like you squeezed it in a little yeah. bit, but, but it all worked out. And so how did you meet her? Uh, we met at work, actually. Is um, that right? Yeah, we were both graduates at the BA Systems graduate scheme in, in Barrow and Furnace. Different sides of the business. On the same side, they had ships and submarines, and I was in the the submarine side, and they had uh, land and armaments, so they built tanks and big guns, and and she was on that side of the business, and a, you know a few graduate get-togethers and nights out, and you know what happens, and yeah, we uh, we got together, and you know it was always interesting because we were both pretty career focused, and we were moving around the place, and she went to a 
couple of other sites, but we stayed together through all of it, and then uh, yeah, and then got married. Yeah. Some what I don't know, fifteen years ago, yeah, something like yeah. that. And was she originally from England or she was from else? Uh, she was from Scotland, from Glasgow. Right. Okay. So I'd spend a bit of time up in Glasgow as as part of the graduate scheme as well, working in the shipyards up there. So yeah, it was good to get to know Glasgow and uh, her home city. So when you look at back at your time at BAE, it's it's clearly with fondness. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, an amazing company with amazing people and really tremendous capabilities on a on a global scale. So. It's very impressive what, what they've done. Paddy, you, you moved from there onto Network Rail, which is an amazing institution as well when you think that it is the owner and infrastructure manager of most of the railway network in Great Britain. Phenomenal. What made you move across there from BAE? Yeah, it's a good question. So launching a nuclear submarine is not an easy thing, and the permission you need to be able to do it, the paperwork, the checks and balances to ensure that it's absolutely right to do it. Because once you start a nuclear reactor and launch a submarine, you're kind of monitoring it for the rest of its life. And that was hard work. Yeah, I remember there was four months I didn't have a day off, not a Saturday, not a Sunday. I remember I had about five hours off on my birthday, which fell in the middle of that, drove to see some friends and decided that I didn't even want a beer because I needed to get back to work and drove back the same night. Um, so I think I was just burnt out. You know, I got, yes. I got to the end of that. We'd launched a submarine, massive success. And I thought, you know, what, what do I want to do with my life? Do I want to go and deliver another submarine and do all this again and, you know, try and learn, improve, make it better, even more efficient? Or should I have a look at what's out there? And yeah, a job came up with Network Rail, which I, I decided to take. And people often ask me, why Network Rail? Why would you go from shipbuilding to railway infrastructure? And, and actually, there's a whole lot of synergy and links. The nuclear industry, very heavily regulated. A lot of people who've been there for a long time, safety critical. Yes. And a lot of the big infrastructure projects that I was going to go and work on were very similar. You know, the, the railway had to keep running. People had to be safe. You're putting trains at a 120 miles an hour on a, on a track, and it's, and it's all got to work. Or you're remodeling a station with 300,000 people going through it every hour and uh, making sure that they're safe while you're working. So a lot of similarities in terms of the features of the job, albeit, you know, different output and a whole lot of new acronyms to learn as well. So you would have taken that expertise in safety in terms of not only the crew of the submarines, the speed, the power, the capabilities and understanding all that. And then looking at trains, looking at the safety mechanisms within passengers, but also, as you say, the, the way the passengers flow through into those trains. Did you find that it was actually more challenging or less challenging in the, when you compare? I think they were both very challenging. They, the toughest bit about railways is because they need to run and move people all day, every day, the quiet times when you can actually work on infrastructure or terminals, whatever it may be, tends to be evenings, weekends, holidays. Yes. You know, you work all week and you're only working up towards a Friday because you know at midnight on a Friday night you take possession of a stretch of railway and you've got 24, 48 hours, whatever it is, to get your piece of work done 100% and hand the railway back to the operating companies on a Monday morning. And the only thing you know is if you don't, you're on the front page of the newspaper because a million people can't get into Paddington Station on time for work. My goodness. So your first role was route delivery director. Yeah, so in the 
two main roles yeah. with uh, well, with the other with one was signaling signaling yeah. yeah so started in the infrastructure side and you know whether it is bridge repairs embankments station upgrades that sort of thing and then had an opportunity to move on to the signaling side you know the control systems are on trains so whenever they need to be upgraded so arguably even more safety critical role and and responsibility but you know, a new challenge and uh, find a reason to say yes. And it felt like here's something else I can learn. Here's another string to my bow. So, yeah, I moved across to the signaling side and really enjoyed that as well. When you look at that, did you use your engineering side a lot in this part? Thinking logically, thinking how the infrastructure would work, piecing it together? Yeah, I think the uh, thinking logically, understanding the problem and being able to look somebody in the eye and say, really? Whenever they're trying to give you an excuse or a reason for something. Yes. That's the sort of engineering I do. If I uh, described myself as an engineer now, my head of design would, would, have, <laughs> would have a word with me. Even though I do like to get him in the office, scribble on the whiteboard and pretend I know what I'm doing. He's very polite, smiles nicely and says, yes, I'm sure that's correct. And then goes and gets on with it. But yeah, I think the engineering degree, you know, I never got into the hardcore engineering design side of things. No. It was always an engineering business, you know, but having that engineering background, I think it's absolutely vital to help you really understand the root cause of problems or issues or what could go wrong. And that stood me in great stead all the way through my career. So that, that kind of decision I fell into around something that I was very interested in, but didn't know where it was going to take me, doing that engineering degree, I think has, has really helped. Paddy, this is such an interesting conversation when you look at that background and it's quite a unique background when you look at it. And then at that point, so you're, you're around 2017, you spend another five years at Network Rail and then the shores of Australia beckon. Tell us a bit about how you ended up in Australia and, and why and, and the opportunity set and your thought process because I could imagine that you and Susie were pretty happy you were having a great life, working very hard, but enjoying what you were doing. And now you decided, right, it was time to go down under. Yeah, it really wasn't planned in any way, shape or form. You know, I've met a lot of people who've wanted to move to Australia or wanted to live here, quality of life, you know, all those sort of things to get quoted. But, you know, we were living in this beautiful village in southwest England. My kids walked to the village school. If I forgot my wallet and went into the pub, it didn't matter because Eddie knew me and uh, would just put it on the slate. I'd sort him out next time I was there. We had a lovely little uh, pheasant shoot in the village and, you know, you could drive around your Land Rover, stick your gun in the corner of the pub after the shoot's finished. You know, it was, life was really lovely. Yeah, And, yeah. Um, you know, it was a great place to live. And then this headhunter from New York kept phoning me and phoning me and I wouldn't even take the call for a long time and then eventually I got fed up them phoning so I just answered to tell him to stop calling me and they're pretty persuasive these guys so he, he managed to engage me in a conversation and say you know there's this great shipbuilding job in Australia and it's absolutely got your name on it. I explained to him about the lovely little village that I was in and you know what I could see out my window and why I was you know Life was pretty good. Flattered that he'd phoned me, yeah. but I had no desire to move to Australia. And a few phone calls later, it was actually David Singleton got me on the phone, who's also Peter Persuasive. So he was the chief executive at Austin at the time and persuaded me to fly to Australia for a weekend. I don't know who does that. I think I was in the air longer <laughs> than I was on the ground, but he's a persuasive man. So uh, out I came, I looked at Austell, I, uh, I had a bit of a drive around, he, he did the classic thing, he took me to one of the surf life saving clubs for dinner, 
you know, watching the sunset, bought the best bottle of wine they had, bought me a big steak and said, you need to go home and think about this. Why don't you bring your family out for a look? And in a moment of weakness, I said, yeah, okay, I think I'll do that. So I went home, explained to Susie that maybe we should go to Australia for a week and have a look at it. There's a great job. It does sound very interesting. I know we love the village and the boys love the school and, and life's good, but you know, this is kind of interesting and very exciting. And in the absence of any other plan, why don't we have a look at it? So, you know, lo and behold, three weeks later, it's half-term holidays. All family out to Australia, have a look around, spend some time with Hostel. He's lined up, you know, a lovely friend of his to drive us around, show us houses, schools, beaches, all the best of Perth. <laughs> and I think three days into the five, I signed a contract <laughs> and uh, went home and uh, had to break the news network rail that unfortunately I was, uh, I was moving to Western Australia. So, And that um, would have gone... You're doing what? <laughs> <laughs> they, they were a bit surprised. And then uh, you start talking about the job. And I think that they must have seen the enthusiasm and the excitement. And yes. they knew there was no point trying to talk us out of it. This was one of those sort of great life experiences that it's not only career, it's good for the family. You know, there's a lot of positives around it. And I'm so glad that we took that chance when it was presented. So well, that was 2017, the start of 2017. So you've been here a while and you flew in and kicked off straight away as Chief Operating Officer for Hostel. Yeah, that's it. So I, I left before the family did. I went to the yard in the Philippines for a month and that didn't go down very well because you know, I'll show you just how on Australia we were thinking we were doing a massive upgrade to the house, basically doubling the size of the house. Right. And we were coming towards the end of that build. So I didn't see the house finished before I left for the, for the Philippines. Still haven't seen it to this day with COVID. I haven't been back. So I walked out with two suitcases, said, uh, good, good luck packing up. If you can get the builder to finish the house, send us the final bill. Uh, I'll see you in a month in Singapore. So I trooped off and went to the Philippines, met the team there, spent a month understanding the company, aluminium, how it works, you know, great experience to spend so much time in the yard over there and get to know everybody. And then uh, met the family a month later in, in Singapore and we all flew to Australia together. So at that point, when you arrived in the Philippines, did you really think, right, this is exactly what I thought I was getting myself into? Or did you sort of go, right, wow, here, here I go, I'm in the deep end? Well, I think the Philippines is one of those deep end experiences. Yes, you know, yes. So, so I'd never been to the Philippines before, got off the plane and thought, okay, this is interesting. And then you get in a taxi, it gets you to the hotel, the hotel seems okay. And I know the next day an hostel guy is going to come and pick me up, a guy I've never met. So I'm standing in the hotel lobby going, I wonder what he'll look like. And thank goodness he had an hostel shirt on. So I went and introduced myself, Filipino guy, very nice, very polite, put me in the little minibus and drove me one hour up the mountain. And when I say over the mountain, I mean over the mountain, around the dogs lying in the road, around the little stalls at the side of the road. It amazes me to this day that you see the school kids in these perfect white shirts, literally walking out of the jungle onto the road to walk to the schools. And at that point, I'm thinking, what the hell have I done? Right. Uh, I've left southwest England, village pub, everything's perfect, life's idyllic, and I'm now driving around dogs that are dead or asleep in the road. And we got to the shipyard, and the gates opened, and I drove in, and I just remember that sense of relief when I looked around and said, oh, it's a shipyard. I, I know where I am. Yes. I know what I'm doing. Yes. It feels like home. And uh, 
you know, never look back after that day. What a great team of people we have over there, really dedicated. We've made massive investment in that facility over the years. And they're coming on, you know, leaps and bounds in terms of uh, in terms of what we're delivering. And I can always go back to that first month where that, that I spent with them and really understanding who they are and what they're capable of. So, uh, great experience. Well, let's go a little bit further in terms of your role with Austal. You were a made chief executive officer and an MD in January 2020, and Austal is a well-known, iconic name within Australia. And how did that feel when you received that role? Clearly you'd earned the right to be in that role in the first place, but how did it feel actually being asked to take on the role and then were you nervous? Were you excited? You know, what was your feeling at that point? All of the above. You know, it's, it's kind of a process you go through. When David recruited me, he always said, look, you know, whenever it's my time to go, whenever I've had enough or it's time for a change, you'll be the guy they look at and they'll test you against the world. You know, yes. so from day one, it was my intention to give it everything I'd got with a view to, you know, can I get there? Can I be chief executive? Can I run the company? Can I get to the top spot? And yeah, absolutely. You know, whenever the day comes and David sort of says, look, thinking that it's time for a change, I've been here nine years. I've probably got one more big job in me. If I stay, then, you know, I might not get another shot at whatever's next. So I think the right thing is to go. And, you know, you start having that conversation with the chairman and the board. And I wouldn't say it's a formal interview, but, you know, they're really asking you more searching questions than the questions they ask you in the the sort of day-to-day job and, and getting to know you. And yeah, it's an amazing feeling whenever they say, right, we've made the decision. We think you're the right guy for the job. And yeah, I, I can't decide whether it's uh, excitement, enthusiasm, fear that uh, that hits you first or most. Probably all of them at once. And then I think like a lot of the other experiences, when you've been thrown at the deep end, you take a deep breath and uh, you immediately start focusing on how am I going to do this? What do I need to do? What needs to be done? Yes. And really get into that process of uh, how am I going to make this a success? Well, when you look at Austell, and I have done a little bit of homework around the business, and the videos are simply amazing. I was saying to you earlier, having just finished watching Top Gun Maverick, it was just wonderful watching these amazing, beautiful boats coming out of the sheds when you launch them onto the water and the way that they look and feel. And when you're the CEO of this operation, it must fill you with immense pride that Austell can produce these massive machines. It really is amazing. You know, Austell is a truly amazing place to work. It's hard to imagine that 32, 33 years ago, John founded that company. Yeah, and what we started out on little cray boats and where we've grown to, whether it's the patrol boats we build in Australia, whether it's the high speed catamaran ferries that we build or the you know, the, the warships in the United States. Yeah, you know, I think we're on contract or have built some thirty four warships for the US Navy. It's quite an amazing accomplishment from that little company that was uh, stationed here all those years ago. Tell us a little bit about the role of John Rothwell. In terms of founding managing director, he's been with the company for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John and I get on really well. You know, we will talk daily. He's still super focused on the business and lives and breathes it on a daily basis. In the office most days, chairman's hours, of course, you know, between 10 and 2, but he is absolutely up to speed with everything that's going on and, and has a keen eye and a lot of good ideas about what's happening on a daily basis and, and where we should be going. So, 
that relationship works works pretty well. You know, some people could be a little bit intimidated by that or find it difficult, but you know, from day one, John and I find a find a groove that you know I understand he's the chairman, he understands I'm the chief exec, and we've both got a role to do. Yes, and if we work well together, it's good for the company and good for the people and good for the customers. And you know, it's been great. Patty, that thanks for sharing that. When I look at some of the achievements. I was looking at FY21, you delivered seven naval vessels, two commercial ferries from Australia, three naval vessels from Austral USA, two commercial ferries from Vietnam, the largest ever commercial ferry by volume constructed by Austral from the Philippines, and four commercial ferries from China. That's just FY21. Currently, first half 22, you've got five ships delivered, 25 ships under construction, You've got five shipyards in four countries and eight service centres in four countries. That keeps you going. We like to keep busy. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's a great machine. We have amazing people. We invest in them. We invest in the facilities. And, you know, we work with customers, commercial and defence, just to really demonstrate our capability. You know, I think one thing that, that really drives me all the way through my career is deliver on commitments. Yes. You know, whatever I've said I'll do, I will do everything I can to do it. And I think that's one of the reasons I've been successful, I've been promoted, you know, I can consistently be relied upon to deliver. And that's what Austel do. You know, we are very focused on customers and delivering on commitments. You know, it's a big machine now in many countries. And I think the main challenge is that big machine needs to be kept fed. Yes. And uh, with challenges like COVID, that hasn't been easy in the last couple of years. You know, the commercial shipbuilding world has basically gone to sleep while they work out are people going to come back when is the world going to open up and you know I'm really pleased to say we're starting to see that happen again yes my job really is to make sure that I keep people employed yeah. you know these are loyal hostile people who give us so much every day it's my job to get out there and make sure they've got work and in turn we'll deliver that for our customers so there's a real symbiotic relationship we've got there talking about this going out there and getting work Where's the focus in terms of, is it the commercial side more than the defence? Or, I mean, is Austral USA a major part of that? I was reading as part of your ongoing growth strategy that, you know, there's such an opportunity over there. We've uh, got a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great time for Austral. We've spent the last couple of years diversifying the business. You know, in the past we've been, you know, if you go back a few years, we were much bigger in commercial ferries than we were in defence. Right. Uh, the defence business is growing now such that it's probably 85% of our business by revenue. Um, so very much our focus. Commercial work is focused in the, the Asian yards in the Philippines and, and Vietnam. And that's really just a function of global economics and labour rate. That is the most efficient place to deliver commercial boats and, and compete on a, on a global scale against, against other shipyards. So it means in Australia and the US, we are 100% focused on, on defence work. You know, the real challenge we had in the US was when they announced the end of the literal combat ship program. Right. You know, so we'd relied for years on uh, two block-by programs that um, just kept producing orders. And when the biggest one you know is going to stop, it's very challenging to try and fill that hole. Yes. Uh, these programs don't come up every day, so whenever you're bidding for one every two years, it's a big deal whenever you don't win one. Yes. Um, so we're absolutely bidding for those, and there are a couple that we have uh, tenders in for at the minute, and we've put our best foot forward, and of course we're optimistic about, about winning those. And one of the things that gives us great confidence is, in the US, they're very structured in terms of the certainty they would like to put into Navy being able to operate, so much so they'll go right back down into industry 
and just over a year ago, we were gifted $50 million that we match-funded to turn our U.S. facility into a steel and aluminium facility. So it looks like there'll be a lot of steel ships in the future. We've been gifted $50 million by U.S. Navy to convert that yard. We opened it on the 12th of May, so we're absolutely ready to go. Yes. And you know, I don't think anybody gifts you $50 million if they don't believe that there's a, a long future for you. So. I'm very confident that there will be big programs to come in, in the U.S. in shipbuilding. But in the meantime, we've, we've really tried to diversify. So, you know, we have been very reliant on those big programs in the past, and, and now we're focused on the support of vessels as well as the build of vessels. We can do it in steel, we can do it in aluminium, and there are many other smaller programs that we're starting to look at as well. So not just two major platforms, but trying to fill in all those peaks and troughs with some additional work, maybe working with some of the bigger suppliers in the U.S. about doing some subcontract work for them. Or indeed, um, you know, there's some TATS, towing and salvage vessels, that uh, alongside the 50 million the U.S. Navy have, have gifted us. So we've got two of those on order at the minute and another three options. And that's really going to blow the cobwebs away on the steel production line and we'll be able to demonstrate to US Navy or Coast Guard that we are very capable of building in steel as well as aluminium. So pretty exciting time, really. Oh, it sounds really exciting. I noticed that these ships have a, have a life of somewhere around 25 to 30 years. Maintenance must be a huge part of this ship to continue to achieve it, what it's designed to do. Like a typical car company where you take your car in to get maintenance. Are you building a maintenance annuity income style of business on the back of these production lines? Yeah, we absolutely are. So for years, we built amazing ships and uh, waved goodbyes. They sailed off over the horizon. We never saw them again. And, you know, we'd hear stories about what they'd been doing. And then we realized, of course, they need to be maintained. You know, so not so much in the commercial space because the operators tend to do that themselves. Right but definitely in the defence space and winning contracts here in Australia to look after the Cape Class patrol boats for Border Force and now Cape Class patrol boats for Navy, helping with the Guardian Class patrol boats that we build and their support. So much so we saw a great future and we made an investment in Cairns and Brisbane and, and we took over a business up there. And that's really our commitment to ensure that we've got the people, we've got the facilities and we can put the certainty into our customers by doing it ourselves, not relying on anybody else and making sure that border force boats are available, Navy boats are available, and um, Austin have the capability to do that. Exactly the same thing in the US. You know, so started small over there, started as a subcontractor, we're admitted onto some of the panels that allow us to bid as a prime, and uh, back in December, we invested in facilities in San Diego, where most of the Austell-built ships are home-ported, and we're really confident that the support side of the business will just continue to grow. That support side is that really the eight service centers is that yes absolutely that, that is that where is it's it. all going to be yep. maintained and yep. and ongoing yep. and eight at the minute you know i'll be optimistic and say we want to keep growing it so there'll probably be an opportunity for more so not only organic growth that we can do on hostile ships but cast iron balance sheet and a really healthy position the company's in so you know an opportunity to invest in organic growth as well and uh, try and grow the business that way too patty one of the things that really struck me when I was looking at what you're looking to achieve is the four meta trends, driving Austal, okay? And, and when I look at technology and what's going on in cars, and, and there's no doubt when you look at your videos, it's going on in ships and automation and the drive, the efficiencies that technology can bring. 
those four meta trends were quite interesting, and I'm just wondering if you might be able to expand a little bit on them. But the first one being regional insecurity, supply chain localization, decarbonisation, and then what I was talking autonomy and automation, and yeah. and just how that was going to drive the direction. It's not just Austal we're talking about here, and when you look at these meta trends, it is it's quite a universal thing. But how is it going to direct Austal in terms of your thoughts and where you see it going forward? Yeah, it, I think it's a very interesting time globally. You know, a lot's changed recently. You know, so COVID caused a lot of change and people to think about how they're doing business. We've seen some instability with, um, you know, maybe it's China, but maybe that's been blowing up a little bit. But certainly um, Ukraine and, and Russia is, is very real. The world today is not as safe as it was yesterday. Um, so probably a good time to be in defence shipbuilding. You know, certainly Australia surrounded by water. What a, what a great opportunity for us to step up, play our part, support the country and deliver the ships that our Navy need going forward. So. Uh, very excited about that and, you know, great opportunities here in Australia with the force structure plan and the volume of work that they've talked about here in WA and the investment that's being made. I think a great time to be in, in shipbuilding here and, and we will step up and uh, absolutely play our part in delivering for, for Australian Navy. Same thing in the US. They brought into law 355 ship Navy and, and that should drive future orders. So, you know, again, something we're, we're very positive about. You know, we also have some lower cost capability that we're starting to offer into Southeast Asian countries as well, you know, that we can really build them fit for purpose warships at a price point that is very interesting for them. So great in terms of instability and, and what it will do to defense spend. And we're very proud to play our part here in Australia and in the US and hopefully other countries in the future. And thinking about warships and um, what they might have to do of course there's people on board and anything we could do to make it as safe as possible will be a good thing taking people out of harm's way doesn't really stretch the imagination in terms of it being a good thing and you talked about cars and where they're going well it's exactly the same in shipbuilding so autonomous vessels are going to be a key part of the future of of any navy I think what's most exciting at the minute is uh, EPF-13 that we're building in the United States, a 103-metre catamaran. Uh, we'll go on sea trials in about two months, and it will have autonomous capability. What, what an amazing asset. What a huge asset to be able to demonstrate that Austal has that capability. We'd like to do the same thing here in Australia. So we're, we're talking to Navy about the minute about uh, producing a demonstrator vessel that we can then work up various concepts for about what autonomous capability can do. But here in Australia, when we've got so much ocean, why would we want to send ships full of people to go out there, look, listen and, and cover and patrol thousands of square kilometres of ocean when we can send machines out there to do the job? And then we send people out there whenever there's a job that only people can do. So I think autonomy will be absolutely the future in defence. And, you know, why not in the commercial world as well? You know, if we've got transport ships, bulk carriers, you know, wh- why do they need a crew? Why, why can't we design the ships so they are capable of operating on their own? They're capable of steering. The technology exists today. So I think it's only a matter of time before we start making things more and more efficient um, by taking people out of the loop and only using people when you have to. It's quite thought-provoking when you describe it like this, that the future of shipping and the types of ships, the defence ships that you're building and creating and the technology behind them. 
allows them to be able to be manned in an office in a city while they're out on the Indian Ocean or, or where, whichever ocean they're on doing their role, protecting or defending, whatever role that comes through as. How far do you think that's away, Paddy, in terms of the world going forward where we have ships that are completely autonomous? I think it's very close. Yes. Uh, and I think there's a real drive to accelerate that technology yes. and, and demonstrate it. Yeah, and if I look at the Indo-Pacific trade show that happens every couple of years over in Sydney, where certainly all the big Australian defence suppliers, usually backed by parent companies, come and demonstrate their technology. And two years ago, just before COVID, we saw a little bit of it. And, uh, you know, we had the show a couple of weeks ago over in Sydney, and pretty much everybody who was demonstrating something had some autonomous capability that they were talking about. You know, whether it's a whole ship, whether it's a drone that flies off the back of it, whether it's uh, an autonomous sailboat that goes out, looks, listens, studies the ocean. For me, the theme on every stand was autonomy. Yes. Um, so I think it will it'll be here sooner than we think. Thanks so much for sharing with that sort of information. It's so interesting. When you're building the ships, I want to just come back to the point of the trend of supply chain localization. We're seeing it as a real issue, particularly for importers coming where the, the ships are locking up are unable to, to move at the moment. How does that affect you from a supply of vessels perspective? Can you get the materials you need easily enough because you manufacture onshore? So I definitely can't say easy enough or I've got a whole supply chain team who'll lynch me when I get back to the office. But sure. you know, we've worked incredibly hard to make sure we are foreseeing the problems that could come, getting the materials here on site so we can deliver for our customers. I'm really pleased to say the Guardian-class patrol boats that we're building, we signed that program back in 2015, and despite COVID, we haven't missed a single day on the program. Every ship has been delivered on time. Yes. We had some issues uh, early on with the um, Cape-class program and some of the materials we were getting there, but uh, we find a way through that, and you know it's great that we're handing over ships and we've got a delivery program that, that Navy are happy with today. So. Um, whatever the challenges have been, we've got a team of people working very hard. And I think whenever you were quoting those ship numbers earlier, you know, anyone who says to me, what, what about logistics? How is it impacting the business? We had a record year last year of ship deliveries, 19 ships delivered in a year around the world. Um, so despite all the challenges that are out there, we're, we're finding a way to get through it. doesn't mean it's easy, but we're finding a way to deliver. We sure are. The last one I just wanted to talk about was decarbonisation. It's a theme that comes up each time. How do you see that? form a part of what you're doing at Austell? Yeah, so very dear to our hearts. Um, doing the right thing by the planet and you know, trying to take emissions out of these vessels. We set that strategy that reviewed those four meta trends as a 25-year strategy, so the Austell 2050 strategy. And people said, well, why are you looking so far ahead? Well, exactly as you say, the ships we're building today will be operational in 25 years. So if we're not thinking about what a ship should look like, how it should operate and what fuel it should use in 25 years' time, we're not selling the right ships to customers. So we are very much focused on um, what those ships should look like and, and decarbonisation and low emissions is uh, something that's dear to our heart. Dear to our heart from right thing for operators, but also efficiency in terms of reducing their costs, making Austell the sort of place they want to come to buy a ship because we can give them something that's that's better they can get elsewhere. It can reduce their operating costs, it can reduce their emissions, 
And as you know, the world has become increasingly more focused on emissions after the uh, Glasgow conference. And the real focus on ESG for all listed companies these days is just growing. So anything we can do to reduce emissions on these ships, you know, our category three will be category one for for someone else. Um, So making sure that we can support them. I think the great thing about Austal is because we've got such a great technical team, we're technology agnostic. So we haven't backed one fuel or another. We right. absolutely have the capability. If you want a battery boat, we can do it. If you want an LNG boat, we can do it. If you want a biodiesel boat, we can do it. If you want a hydrogen boat, we can do it. But I don't think the technology is quite there yet. If you want ammonia, we could do it, but not sure it's the right fuel. So I think it's another real pivot point for the marine industry at the minute that there are a lot of technologies that are developing and I'm not sure there's a clear winner yet. But what I do know is with our great technical team, we're, we're ready for whatever customers want. Paddy, thank you. I just had another couple of questions, and I want to bring it back to BAE and your experience building subs, okay? You were building nuclear submarines. You clearly were very good at what you did. You understood it well. You knew the pipes, the number of pipes in a machine, what its capabilities were how deep it could go, how fast it could go, and what it could do as what it was meant to do. When you look at that in light of what you're doing with ships, okay, do you draw synergies on it? And can you learn, have you learnt from the submarine technology that you've applied to building ships from your own personal experience? Is it something that you've drawn upon? I think there are a lot of similarities and the Real difference is the governance you put around nuclear. So you must guarantee that everything is 100% correct because the consequence of getting it wrong is just unthinkable. So, you know, having an understanding and appreciation of that focus, that level of detail, that commitment to getting it right and getting it right first time is something that really drives you through whatever you're building. You know, so really understanding what the highest possible level of achievement is, is something something that stays with you you really understand it and you want to drive for the best. And I think, I think driving for the best is something I've always tried to do. You know, yes. anything I try and do, I try and do it to the best of my ability. And, and I think that's, uh, I'm really lucky that that's an hostile thing. You know, the people there are very committed to being the best they can be. Uh, we don't have a lot of politics. We don't have a lot of difficult times. We're non-unionized. So the ability to make change and, and move forward at a pace is um, pretty exciting, really. Of course, it's all about people. You know, so I think whatever I've worked on, wherever I've worked, I rely very heavily on the team. Yes. No, no one person knows everything. Nobody can do it all. So ensuring you have the right team, empowering the people to do their job, choosing the best people you can possibly get and bringing them along and really getting them to gel as a team. You know, maybe it's back to the, back to the rugby days. You know, one person's not going to win the match. You absolutely need every player on the team. And I think that's something that stood me in good stead as, as I've gone through. I'm, I'm as comfortable talking to the Prime Minister when he comes to visit us on site as I am walking around talking to the guys welding and understand what their challenges are. So I think it's working with the people and building the best team you possibly can means you kick goals and get results. Paddy, such a captivating conversation and I could keep asking you so many questions about this area. It's really, really interesting and you've got such a fantastic and and deep knowledge on what you do. But I'm going to digress. You've got two young boys they're keeping you busy very busy yeah. you know what it's like here in wa it's yeah. kids sports it's uh, work 60 hours a week and then get home and uh, drive your kids from one sporting event to another <laughs> so yeah. you know we have great fun at the weekend as a family trying to work out the logistics of getting the kids to the right place at the right time so 
and with two active boys, that's uh, that's a whole lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. And have you? I mean, I always ask this question, but have you managed to handle the work-life balance? I mean, in such a demanding role, has it been a challenge? I think it's always a challenge. Yes. And you know, there's no right answer. Um, but certainly. There are things that I wish I'd been there for. You know, there are still some times where you go to school and somebody will come up and shake your hand and say, hey, are you a new dad? And that's embarrassing and that's not really what I'd want to do. But then being able to provide for the family and, and send them to a private school and, you know, they come home and they jump in a swimming pool in their back garden. You know, it's finding that balance. Yeah. And the commitment I've made to the company and and what I want to do for the for the people there, yeah, it's difficult to find the right balance. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that. Um, I think you know when it's wrong. Yes. And when it doesn't feel wrong, you've probably just about kept it on the right track. Well, it'd be an amazing thing for your young young boys to be at school and and they get the question, well, what does dad do? <laughs> Yeah, but you know what it's like. I, I, I'm just this old guy who turns up at home every so often, gets a bit grumpy when the place is untidy and they haven't done their homework. So, um, you know, it's only it's only every so often that they they really understand. I think yes, you know. So yes. uh, there was one Sunday I needed to go into work for a reason. I said, "Come on, boys, why don't you come with me?" And, and Susie, my wife, as well, because you know, works work and and home's home, and I and I try not to bring work home. I I try and keep that differentiation. You know, when I go to work, I'll work whatever I need to work to get it done. And then when I come home, I try and focus on the on the family. So keep those two things separate. But then just bringing them into the shipyard and things I take for granted and then saying, all right, you know, there's nobody working. Why don't we go and have a walk around and and see what it is? And they're just blown away by, by what you do. Then some of the things that seem normal to me, uh, I've got to be in early tomorrow, the prime minister's coming to see us and, and the kids sort of look at you and go, <laughs> really? Um, so I, we had dinner a few weeks ago with, uh, with the prime minister at the time and the kids said, no, I don't believe you, you're not doing it. So, you know, lovely people, had a chat with ScoMo sitting beside him and said, you know, my kids don't believe I'm here having dinner with you. Can I have a selfie? And he said, oh, yeah. So he laughed and he, what age of the kids? We had a great chat, took the selfie, came home. Kids, look, daddy is important. Look at, look at the selfie I got today. Here it is, so, is the uh, proof. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's, it's nice when you can actually prove that you, uh, you add some value on a daily basis and try and get some respect from your kids. <laughs> Good on you. Well, look, I must say it's been a wonderful chat and thanks a lot for your time, Paddy. As I say, we could keep talking for a long time. I'd love to learn more about how these boats really operate and, and the, the speeds they get to and their capabilities. But maybe that's, that's on for another podcast at some stage. But we do, on behalf of Euros Hartleys, we really do appreciate you taking the time out. You have an extremely busy schedule and you've managed to squeeze us in. I know that it's taken a bit to, to be able to squeeze this time in. So on behalf of us all, thanks a lot and all the very best for what, what you're doing at Austin and, and going forward. So thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Good on you, Paddy. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. 
you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.